Lord, we pray now that uh, that you would uh, speak to us really clearly now, and uh, that you would that you you would open up your words and help us to have open hearts and open minds as we as we hear what you have to say and and let the truth of it sink in and and change us and sanctify us as your people. Um, we thank you again for this word, this precious word that we so often take for granted, and and just pray that you would get me out of the way and just be in charge right now. Jesus Christ, name, amen. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. That's Luke chapter 16 and beginning at verse 19. Looking at a parable tonight. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, the one rise from the dead. Amen. This is, the, this is God's word to us. So I thought I'd begin by giving a bit of context, as context is key when dealing with the scriptures. So this parable or story is one of many found in the Gospel of Luke which um, involves an unclean sinner or an unlikely kind of person being shown mercy instead of a religious Jew. And the author wants his readers to know and understand that Jesus had compassion on those people who were regarded as outcasts in Israel, and that Jesus came to save sinners like us, not to call the so-called righteous. The narrative paints as a picture as well of a big change that was going on at the time. The time of the law and the prophets had ended. And the preaching of the kingdom of God had just begun. And there were people outside of the Israel camp who had heard Jesus' teaching and had believed. Yet the Pharisees, on the contrary, would not believe Jesus. Instead, they wanted him dead. And Jesus is telling this parable primarily to that people, to the Pharisees, just after rebuking them. The Pharisees were lovers of money, and they justified themselves before men instead of God. 
So verse 19, beginning this parable, we have a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple was considered a very expensive color in that day. So although wealthy people would have worn purple as an outer garment, and the fine linen was what he would have worn underneath. And it says he fared sumptuously every day, which is how the New King James puts it. This means he lived in luxury every day. He feasted, partied, and was very prosperous. This man resembles a um, someone that people would admire, look up to, perhaps a famous celebrity or someone in royalty, someone greatly respected in society. Yet this man remains unnamed in the parable. Jesus does not give him a name, even once. In contrast, we have the beggar named Lazarus in verse 20. This man is given a name, which is why some believe this to be a historical event. But Jesus is telling this story in the same manner he tells the rest of his parables to teach an important lesson. Don Carson in his sermon makes a very, very important point about this, about the name situation. From our point of view, he says, this doesn't really matter. But in the biblical world, it is very significant. Throughout scripture, a person with a name or given a name is considered very important because it always tells us something very significant or telling about the person or what will happen to the person in the story. So even though this rich man would have considered himself very important with all the money he had, Jesus is saying he's not important at all by not giving him a name. So instead he gives the poor man a name, Lazarus, which makes him very important because the name Lazarus in Hebrew actually means the one God has helped. This beggar was full of sores, was laid at the rich man's gate. He was probably carrying a deadly disease, possibly leprosy. And it sounds as if he was unable to walk himself as he had to be laid at the rich man's gate. So Jesus is creating a, uh, a sort of character who is almost everything the Pharisees would have despised and hated. He's painting like a gruesome kind of sight for them. They had no time for the poor. They didn't care about the lame. And they would have not touched lepers with a 10-foot pole as they were carrying a contagious disease. And for that reason, they were banned from worshipping in the temple. So this man had absolutely nothing. It was very unfortunate, but desired to be fed with the crumbs from the rich man's table. And only the dogs came and licked his sores. This beggar would have been hated, despised, probably even spat on by people who walked past him. He would have been treated essentially like one of the dogs, as it was common for, for dogs to come and eat the leftover crumbs from a person's table. But let's be clear on one thing. Dogs were not viewed as cute household pets in first century Palestine. You wouldn't have caught anybody stroking their heads or scratching the tummy because they were actually viewed as the worst scavengers to ever walk the earth. So we've got two very different men. We've got a rich man who parties, lives a life of abundance, and the second, a beggar, a man who is poor, lame, and leprous, and in constant pain and need every single day. And all of a sudden, the next part of the story is when both of these men die. So it was that the beggar died, which is verse 22. This could have been an obvious ending to, this, to the Pharisees. They're probably thinking, okay, so the beggar dies and then he perishes. Well, of course he does. No, nope. Jesus doesn't stop here. 
and this is not how the story ends at all. But instead of going into detail about how these men die, Jesus continues by telling us what happens following their deaths, which is the most significant part of this parable. Jesus begins with Lazarus the beggar and then the rich man. For the sake of this sermon, we will look in reverse order. So the rich man's death we will look at first. The second bit of verse 22, the rich man died and was buried. So it sounds like this man had a comfortable death. He probably died in a bed with his family weeping over him. And being as wealthy as he was, it is no surprise that he was buried. His family would have easily got him a place of burial, and his body was likely laid in a tomb. And if they did funerals in those days, he would have had a great funeral. But um, for the beggar, on the other hand, there is no mention of him being buried at all. Remember, this man had nothing and nobody to help him. No family or friends, no place to lay his head. So therefore, no place of burial. This man may have died outside the rich man's gate where we last saw him, if not in the streets. And his dead body may have been thrown into a scrap heap where all the other dead outcasts would have been thrown. Yet the angels came and carried him up to Abraham's bosom. So let's read verse 22 again. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This is an expression only found here in the Bible, but it was used in the Talmud, which was an ancient Jewish book of traditions. It's a figure of speech for uh, someone entering into paradise. So Abraham is the great patriarch of Israel, father of Judaism. The Jews would have looked up to him as their father and would have prided themselves in that because God found favor with Abraham and declared him as righteous. So Lazarus is taken up to a place that was prepared in honor of him, a place where he can find comfort and rest finally. And he gets to recline next to Abraham in a banquet. This kind of reminds me of the parable in Luke 14 about the great supper. Because then the servant is asked by the master to go out into the streets, bring in the lame and the poor since his original guests had declined. They would not come. So similarly, God is showing mercy to this poor man left to die outside the gate and sends his angels to carry him to the place which he has prepared for him. So the rich man, on the other hand, is not carried by the angels, but instead, verse 23, he lifts up his eyes and sees Abraham with Lazarus afar off. He wakes up and finds himself in a place of flaming fire and he sees Abraham with Lazarus, but they're far away. He can't get to them. The text calls this place Hades. So Hades is the Greek name for the realm of the dead. In Hebrew, it's called Sheol. And this is referred to throughout scripture as the abode in which the dead souls wait and, until the day of the resurrection and the judgment. Hades is mentioned in other parts of the New Testament. And it is always referred to as a place where the unrepentant wicked sinners go down to when they die, as opposed to being lifted up into heaven. Verse 24, the rich man cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in his flame. So he's crying out to Father Abraham and begs him for relief. Notice how he cries out to Abraham as his father and not to God as his heavenly father. 
This man is a perfect representation of the Pharisees because he himself prides himself in being a son of Abraham and has always looked up to him. But he does not know God, so he does not call upon his name. Instead, he cries out to Abraham, asks him to send Lazarus over to him so he may cool his tongue with just one drop of water. The rich man's attitude toward Lazarus has not changed at all. He still looked down on him as someone lower than him, even though he can see him in paradise with Abraham. And notice also the reason he gives at the end, why he makes this request. He says, for I am tormented in this flame. He's not expressing any kind of remorse for his self-righteousness or cruelty towards people like Lazarus. But instead we see self-pity and arrogance. He's only concerned about his own welfare and where he is currently. So what we begin to see is a, a real turning of the tables, a reversal of roles on this side of death. The poor man has shown mercy and given comfort. The rich man is in torments and being given over to judgment. Lazarus spent his whole lifetime begging people like the rich man to give him some crumbs from his table so he wouldn't have to starve to death. He was in constant pain and agony with the sores all over his body. And the only source of comfort he ever got was when the dogs came and licked them for him. But now the rich man is in agony and he is begging for Lazarus to give him some relief, to give him just one drop of water. Now he knows what it's like to be in constant pain and need. Abraham responds, verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Abraham responds to him very tenderly as he calls him son. He's speaking quite kindly to him, even though he's not going to give him what he wants. And the reason for this is not just because he's not willing, but also because Abraham has neither the authority nor the power to do such a thing. He makes this very clear by what he says. First, he puts things into perspective, reminding him of his lifetime. He had all his good things then. That was his comfort. He has received his reward in full, like the Lord Jesus said. Lazarus, however, received nothing but evil things. So now he is comforted and you are tormented. He then goes on to mention that besides all this, there's a great gulf, a great chasm fixed between them, a great big hole that no one can pass. So it would be impossible for him to do so anyway if he was willing. So in other words, it is far too late for the rich man to try and turn things around. He had a whole lifetime to repent he had a whole lifetime to help the poor and to be to humble himself but he didn't because he wasn't willing so where does this impassable gulf picture come from well it comes from a jewish rabbinical belief that was common during the second temple period jesus time and this gulf or chasm was what separated the righteous dead from the unrighteous dead and this means that the, the dead who wait until that final day will get to experience a foretaste or a foreshadow of their eternity before that great day of judgment. Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees, like we said before. So it is very 
it's very possible that the Pharisees believed in this doctrine as well. So they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. But what would have shocked the Pharisees and disgusted them is the idea of an unclean beggar being in paradise with Abraham. This would have been offensive and unfitting to their way of thinking. But let's be clear about one thing. I'm just going to say what Jesus is not teaching us. He's not trying to say that only the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell. It's not like that. All we have to do is look at Abraham. Abraham himself was a wealthy man. God blessed Abraham with much cattle. Yet God also found him to be righteous in his sight. And he found special favor with Abraham. And this was not because of his own good works of righteousness. It wasn't uh, his keeping of traditions. And nor was it because of his wealth status either. But it was by faith alone. And that faith was followed by obedience. He believed God. He believed his word. He believed in his promises. So he obeyed and followed him. The rich man, again, like we said, represents the kind of people like the Pharisees, a man of pride and self-righteousness and also a lover of money. He has no regard for God and his kingdom. He has no time for the poor, but is in love with himself and his own riches. That's what he really treasured. And the uh, the psalmist of Psalm 73, which we read earlier, says, makes these comments about the um, about the rich and, pride and prideful. He says, Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and that the tongue walks through the earth. Psalm 73 is actually quite fitting to this parable because in this psalm, the psalmist is deeply disturbed by how prosperous the wicked men were in his day. And he questions God why he allows this. But then verse 17 is when things turn around. It says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, I, I understood their end. He says he's given a new perspective. So it's not that God loved the wicked and, and hated the good, but he, but he allowed the wicked men to prosper in their lifetime because he had already given them over to their own rebellion. But in the end, he will deal with them justly on that judgment day. And that, this is what Asaph, the psalmist, learns as he goes through this psalm. And he finishes with these beautiful words, 27 28, for indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Amen. So we're just going to look look at the passage prior to the parable, um, just a few verses. Luke 16, 14 to 16, if you have it open. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So. Jesus rebuking them for their self-righteousness. They justify themselves before men rather than God. 
And Jesus is warning them that God knows the secrets of their hearts and that one day he will judge them. For what is highly esteemed by men is an abomination in the sight of God, verse 15. And this verse actually echoes what the Lord said to Samuel long ago. He said, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Pharisees compared themselves to other men, justified themselves based on how good they looked, how long they prayed for, how many times they fasted, how often they washed, etc. It was all about outward performances with their religious duties and their keeping of tradition. And they also believed that their wealth and prosperity was a sign of God's blessing on them. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that worldview is very much alive today as it was in Jesus' time. Makes me think of uh, certain celebrities like Will Smith, who was uh, who recently had to resign from the Oscar Academy after slapping Chris Rock across the face in public and on national television. So, and believe it or not, this man believes himself, he claims to love God, and he thinks God loves him. But the reason for that is because of his riches, his success, and his popularity. Yet at the same time, he has also shared with the public that he and his wife lead an open marriage. It's hypocrisy. Absolute hypocrisy. So in the next verse, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John. He is referring to John the Baptist, the prophet who introduced the people to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And this is what marked the beginning of the new era in redemptive history. The time of the law and the prophets had been fulfilled because the Son of God has come in the flesh. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing in. So what he's saying, allow me to paraphrase what Jesus is saying toward the Pharisees. He says, you continue to question me and ridicule me and you want to kill me. But everyone else is eagerly listening to my preaching about the kingdom of God. And also, many sinners have heard my words and have come to believe and trust in me. So the Pharisees are wasting their time trying to catch Jesus out, yet everyone else is hearing his words and they're believing in him. And this is people outside of Israel. The Pharisees would not believe Jesus' words because they were spiritually dead and they were blinded by their self-righteousness and their pride and everything they held dear on earth. They prided themselves in being experts in the scriptures and as sons of Abraham, which to them was their salvation. No matter how many times Jesus proved himself to them with his teaching, his works, and even his miracles, they still continue to reject him. And they've already been talking about killing him, as we've said. John chapter 8 records a really heated argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. You can turn with me, if you like, to that passage which I'm going to read to you. So it's John 8, 37 to 45. So this is Jesus speaking. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. Then they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. 
you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the tr- tell the truth, you do not believe me. Going through uh, John MacArthur's book, uh, Why Believe the Bible, he makes a couple of comments uh, concerning this passage and says that they're trying to get to heaven on Abraham's coattails. Instead of accepting Jesus' offer, they build a wall of self-righteousness. Going back to the uh, parable, <clears throat> in uh, verse 27, the rich man answers Abraham back with another request. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So now he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus back on a mission trip to warn his five brothers of this awful place that he's in so that they won't have to. So again, he's asking for Lazarus to do favors for him again. He doesn't ask Abraham to send him back. He could to his own brothers. He doesn't want to go and humiliate himself and uh, and be mocked and scoffed like he never was. So he asked Abraham to send this man. Yeah, send him, send him. He'll he'll do the work for me. His attitude has still not changed and nothing will change him. And Abraham declines him once again. But instead he has something else for them, which they already have. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, which contain the law that was given through Moses and the promises given through the prophets. They already have God's revelation. It's in the scripture. They have it right there. So let them hear it. The rich man responds on the negative. He says, no, Father Abraham, no. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man doesn't believe that God's word alone is enough to save his brothers. So he suggests that they be given a new revelation or have someone go back to them from the dead and give them a message, thinking that that would persuade them to repent and believe. But isn't it interesting how the rich man recognizes his their brothers, his brothers, their need to repent in order to avoid that awful place, which is something he himself is not willing to do. He's not repented or been remorseful at all so far. You know, years ago when I was a student at college, um, I just realized that was over 10 years ago now. can't believe it. Um, I used to get a lot of questions from my peers when sharing my faith with them. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, if only I had more knowledge or more evidence for my friends and in order to prove to them that Jesus is Lord, in order to prove that the Bible is true. But and then maybe they persuaded to believe them. But now I realize that I was actually wrong. 
I didn't understand at the time, being a new Christian, how dead humanity really is toward God. I, I thought that all they need is a good persuasive argument to convince them. But the real reason for their unbelief and their rejection was not down to a lack of evidence. It wasn't down to a lack of proof, but it was because of a real hatred for God and a hatred for the truth. So they chose to sin and rebel because it's what they love. It's what they desire. And they do not want that to be taken away from them. And this is exactly, sorry, going looking at John 8, 44 to 45, that which we've just read. He says, this is what he says to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Yeah, and this is exactly... This is exactly what was going on there, and that was what that's what's going on today when you try to convince someone of the truth and they don't want it. And the reason the Pharisees wouldn't believe and the reason my friends wouldn't believe all those years ago was because they, well, they did not know God and they were not of God. Like Jesus says in verse 47, he who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you were not of God. They may have read the scriptures, they may have memorized them, they may have, you know, known them well, like as, you know, memory verses, like, but they did not hear what the message, the real, the actual message that was coming from them, and it didn't convict them of sin. So therefore, they did not believe Jesus. Coming to the end of this parable, Abraham has the last word in the argument. Again, his answer is a resounding no to his request. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So just like the Pharisees, if they will not hear this word, they will not believe someone who rises from the dead. And this points us to the most significant event in human history, which gives us the hope and assurance we need for our salvation. And this event we celebrate on Easter Sunday today, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we don't need a new revelation to know the truth. We don't need a new sign to be given to prove to us because even it, because who's to say that that sign will convince us? The only, the most credible source we have is the word of God. We don't need someone to come back from the dead and tell us what's on the other side. Jesus has been there. He did die. He went to the realm of the dead. And not only has he been there, but he defeated it. He is victorious over it so that death may no longer reign. And Jesus now reigns at the right hand of his Father, and we, by the power of his Spirit, by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, may receive eternal life in his name. Sadly, there are many professing Christians today who think that, who think that we do need new signs and new revelations, and they, some have even gone as far to say that they've been to the afterlife and come back, and those books they've written have been best-selling gold. We cannot add to the words of scripture because scripture itself does not permit it to or permit us to. This is a closed book. This revelation is is finished and this is what we still need today until the day that Jesus comes back. God has spoken. He has made himself known to the world. He has spoken to men throughout history, such as Moses, the prophets. And now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know this? Simple. We know this from the scripture, which is God's inspired word. And it's his 
It's his method of speaking to us. And it's been passed down to us from generation to generation. Jesus Christ himself is the word of God made flesh, that, which is how John begins his gospel, who gave his perfect life as a ransom, a sacrifice, so that those who repent and put their trust will be saved on the last day. And as Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees, tragically, he knew they weren't going to believe him. He also knew that they were going to hand him over to be crucified as this was his main purpose of coming. And as he finished telling the parable, he was, he was basically saying to them, allow me to paraphrase again, when that day comes, when I walk out of that tomb alive, you will still not believe me. And one day, Jesus is coming again, and he will be ready to judge the living and the dead. So the time of repentance is now, and we must be ready for his coming. I'm just going to... Uh, read a little passage at the end of Matthew's gospel, which which sort of proves this point further about, about knowing the truth. So it's Matthew 28, 1 to 15, and you don't have to turn if you don't want to, but please feel free to. The soldiers are bribed. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away, and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Do apologize if I said 1 to 15, I just read from 11 to 15. But basically what just happened is that the soldiers who guarded the tomb of Jesus saw the angel of the Lord descend from heaven and, and roll the stone from the door, yet it meant nothing to them. This is just how dead humanity really is. These men witnessed an event that neither of us will ever witness. We never, we weren't there to see that and we sometimes wish we would, we did, but the text tells us they only shook with fear and became like dead men and dead men they were because when they saw this, they did not bow the knee before the risen Christ and they did not rejoice like the apostles did. Instead, they report back to the chief priests who ended up bribing them with money so that they won't tell anyone what they saw. And what did they do? Well, they took it straight away because they too were lovers of money. You cannot serve God and mammon. You'll either love the one, hate the other, or despise the one and serve the other. I'd just like to leave you with three important truths that we could get from this message tonight. And the first one is, a true son or child of Abraham is not someone who has been physically descended from Abraham, but one who truly believes in the God of Abraham and lives to serve him daily and forever is a child of the promise, not a child of physical descent. Just like Jesus says, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The second one, second point is the scripture is sufficient for our salvation and it is crystal clear. God has given us his word and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God made flesh, so we will be without excuse on the day of judgment. The scripture commands us 
to repent and believe the gospel so that we may humbly respond and be saved from the wrath that is to come. Because there will be no chance, no more chances of repentance after death, and there will be certainly no repentance in hell. And that parable Jesus told makes that abundantly clear. And the third and final point, but not the least, is that Christ has risen. He has risen from the dead and conquered it. He died in the place of the ungodly. He was laid in the tomb. But now he has risen and he sits at the right hand of God and reigns forever. Which means in him, we may receive his perfect life and righteousness as a free gift. Just like Abraham did. What what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His righteousness, Christ's righteousness was imputed to him even before he came to earth. This is the gospel which we may, which we need to heed to, we must believe in. Amen.